we've been, uh, again, going through our series on the book of Acts, and, and it's, the title is Becoming His Church. And remember, that's, that's what we're looking to do. We're not looking to become a church. We're looking to become His church. And we're going back and using this, this, this story of the, of the very first church to help us understand that how God was working then, He's going to be working um, today. It's not going to look the same. We're not here speaking, you know, Koine Greek or Aramaic. Um, you know, we're not dressed the same way. We're meeting in an air-conditioned room, not in somebody's house. It's going to look different, but there's going to be the, the things that are the same are the things that are most important. And what we've seen is we've seen, um, you know, this pattern that's kind of emerged, that there's a sign some kind of sign, and then following the sign is the proclamation of the gospel. You know, and, and I think that's part of the, the struggle I think we're, we're going to be facing increasingly in the months ahead. As COVID cases come down, as people who have, for some people, for almost two years, haven't really interacted other than on Zoom and things like that with the church, is that there have been lots of signs that have taken place here at, at, at Wiley Baptist Church. And, you know, some, some of us weren't there to see them. And so, are, are, we, are we having the same, like, idea of what's going on, the same emphasis? And I really believe that, that that as we kind of move forward, that more signs are coming. And we talked about the most important sign that we have today, the most common sign is what God does with us, how he unites our hearts and he gives us that supernatural love that we cannot have on our own. And it's one of those things like just, I totally get it. You know, I've never preached to anybody about how they should behave during the pandemic. Totally get it. Whatever your decisions are, that's your decisions. But let me tell you something. Try to get here as soon as you can. Try to, try to connect as soon as you can. Maybe that's going to be two months from now. Maybe that's going to be in another year. I don't know what it is. Whatever as soon as you can is to you. Make it as soon as you can. But here's what we're going to start to see increasingly in the book of Acts. What we're going to see increasingly in the book of Acts is that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. There's going to be a sign. The gospel is going to be proclaimed. People are going to respond, which in and of itself is a sign. The gospel continues to be proclaimed. And what happens is the 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 community around has to respond. And the community will respond in, in one of two ways. When the, when, when the greater community, not the church community, when the greater community sees the signs, hears the gospel, sees the response, they themselves will have to respond, and they'll respond in one of two ways. They'll either embrace the gospel, they'll embrace the gospel, or they'll try to wipe it out. 
You see, you might go, well, well, so why isn't that happening to us today? Why aren't people embracing the gospel and then, you know, filling this place? Or why aren't there people out there trying to shut us down? Why don't we see that? Well, I think it could be for a couple of reasons. I think one reason might be they're not, they're not necessarily seeing the signs. They're not seeing the power of the gospel in our lives and in our church. Or they're seeing the signs, but they're not hearing the gospel. They're not hearing people consistently tell them, this is why this is happening. This is why I'm not the same old miserable person I was before. This is why I'm not the same angry, vengeful person that I was before. This is why I don't, I'm not just all about me and looking out for me. This is why I can forgive. This is why I can love people that before I wouldn't have given the time of day to. This is why. And you tell them why. When you if we're proclaiming the gospel and we're talking about the church, this is why we do what we do. This is why we, we get together. This is why we, we give to those in need. And we proclaim the gospel. So one of the reasons is they're not seeing the sign. Another reason is they're not hearing the gospel, but the third reason is maybe they're just not yet understanding. We're going to look at a group of people today who who understand. They might even very well understand the gospel better than, at least the impact of the gospel, better than even Peter and John. And so what has happened? Peter and John, they've, they've healed this man, this man that was well known to be uh, crippled and had been there for years, decades. And they immediately followed up by preaching to those who came in response to the miracle. And here in this story, as they're speaking, as they're preaching, this group comes up to them. So in chapter 4, verse 1, we see, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Just the men's 5,000. The church has grown from just, a, just 120 to over 3,000 and now probably 12, 15,000. And again, to put it in perspective, the number of people that might have lived in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, not in the outskirts, but the city of Jerusalem, might have been somewhere between 30 to 50,000. Now, some of these people could have been visitors and things like that. But just to give perspective to them, they're not looking at a city of millions and then there's 15,000 in the city of millions. No, it's 15,000 in the city of tens of thousands. 
and they're confronted by this group. And just to let you know a little bit about this group, like the, the priest, and then when it says the captain of the temple, the captain of the temple would have been like the second highest ranking person um, in, in the Jewish religious group. He would have been like vice high priest. So you had the high priest who isn't here yet. He's going to be mentioned later. And then you have the captain of the temple. And then you have the Sadducees. What they all have in common is that they're very powerful, one thing. Second thing is, because they're powerful, they don't want anything to change. They want it all to stay the same. When you're powerful, you only want things to change if somehow you can guarantee it will make you more powerful. But in this case, they don't believe that. So they're very powerful people. They're, they're, you know, we think of the priests, and you might think of like a Catholic priest, or you might think of you know, somebody wearing their collar backwards or something like that, and that's really not the idea of the priest here. The priest was the ones who, who were the ones who helped keep the sacrifices going, the temple, but they were very closely related to the Sadducees, and they were part of the, the, the Jewish aristocracy. Very powerful, doing quite well. The last thing they need is this new movement that seems to be taking off. And that's why in verse 2 it says they're greatly annoyed, but notice they're not annoyed that Peter and John are saying Jesus resurrected from the dead. Notice the way that's worded. It's not saying because Jesus resurrected from the dead, but it's because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They knew. They knew what Peter and John had said in chapter 3, calling Jesus the second Moses, talking about Jesus as the author of life, and now here, talking about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. They knew that they were talking about the Messiah. And they knew that whether a Messiah was true or false, it didn't matter. They were going to lose. If the Messiah was false, he was going to lead this big rebellion, this big revolt, and they were all going to get slaughtered. That's actually what happens in about 30, 40 years from now, from the time of this story. They knew that if the rebellion actually wins, they're at the top. They did not lead Israel to victory. They're not going to be at the top anymore. They want things to stay the same, or they want to be able to control whatever the change is. And that's, again, what powerful people do. They want to stay in power. You see, what they understand is they, un they, they actually are understanding the power of the gospel. They don't get it right. They still think of it as political. They still think of it as this world. But they understand if this message takes off, it's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. And they understand it more than the people who are actually believing it. 
The people who are believing it are just believing it. They're just loving it. It's like, oh, this is awesome. I feel the weight of sin is taken away from me. I'm, I'm, I'm now a part of the, the, this, this group, this community, this family. We're just loving life. They're not thinking about the political ramifications. They're not thinking about how the Romans are perceiving them. They're not thinking about what the religious leaders from the Jewish community are doing. They're just being the church. And it's awesome. But these guys know. These guys see what's at stake. And so they come and they arrest. They arrest them. Now, this is largely, if not exactly, the same group that Jesus stood before just a couple months earlier. It would have been a group of about 70, 71, you count the high priest who was in charge of what was called the Sanhedrin. But they've learned. If you remember the trials of Jesus, the trials of Jesus took place at night. In fact, they violated their own laws because they didn't want to do it during the daytime because they feared like a popular uprising if they did. But here, it's kind of they have the different fear. If they tried to pull that trick again, they're still going to have this uprising because there's already 5,000 men and five to 10,000 more people that are that are already following them. They're all in Jerusalem. So they, they're, gonna, they're gonna follow the rules. So they said, we're not gonna do any of this trial stuff till the daytime. And so they hold them overnight. And it, understanding the power of the gospel has nothing to do with whether they actually believe the gospel's true. They just know what'll happen when people do believe it's true and what it's what is gonna do. So we continue because what we see here is that powerful people, they will oppose the proclamation of the gospel because they know what the gospel is, is calling on them. It's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than to enter the, king of, the kingdom of heaven. Because they know what's at stake. They know what the claims are calling. So in verse 5, Jesus says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest. History tells us Annas wasn't really the high priest, not officially. He was the former high priest who got kicked out by the Romans, but he still was functionally the high priest. He basically was calling all the shots, but from behind the throne. The person who was the high priest was Caiaphas. So with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So again, we got to have in our heads what the priests actually were. They weren't someone who listened, preached, listened to your confess your sins and things like that. No, they're very powerful people and they're all from the same families. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
So the Sanhedrin would have been probably in a kind of a semicircle. Semicircle, um, those of you who can make the connection think Harry Potter. Um, but the, you know, he, they would have then, you know, Peter and John would have been there and there would have been this semicircle of people around them. And it's so that they could see each other. So they're, they're there and they ask this question. And the, the answer they expect, because this is what they're looking for, they're looking for who the ringleader is. They're looking for who is the person that we can now go after to get rid of them, silence them, it's all done. And Peter gives them an answer they are not expecting. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, well, that's why we're being tried. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Here's what the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin heard. We're doing this under the authority and under the direction of a dead guy. That's not what they're expecting. They're expecting to hear about someone that, that's alive and, and, you know, as far as they're concerned, Jesus died because they made sure of it. But Jesus, Peter and John, they say, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you know this got their attention. Not the answer they were expecting. And then they said, whom you crucified, which they knew. But then they said, whom God raised from the dead. Whom God raised from the dead. If you, if you ever, ever hear, because there are, you know, groups of people who consider themselves Christian that want to say this idea of God uh, resurrecting Jesus was really just like a it was more like a story, like a metaphor, and what they really meant was Jesus, uh, that God raised the idea of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus or the spirit of Jesus. Notice, these guys are standing before the very people who killed Jesus, the very people who will incite a mob a couple chapters later and stone Stephen to death. They're standing right there and they're saying, whom God raised from the dead. If I was standing before people who had killed the leader before and there's no indication that that's changed and I really didn't mean God raised him from the dead, I really meant we're, we were so inspired by Jesus because he was such a cool dude and his messages were awesome. So that's what we're doing and it's by that authority that we're doing it. That's what I would do if I didn't believe God raised Jesus from the dead. But that's not what they do. He says, by him, by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, Peter and John are talking about Jesus as though he's still alive. Because he is. 
He's the one who healed him. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. You, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is a salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. And by the way, if you want to go a little deeper, get more detail, ask some questions, join us on Wednesday night. But we're like, why is this so much shorter? Well, I think part of it's shorter because you know, Luke's not going to keep repeating stuff. But I think the other reason it's shorter is because, it's because Peter and John are talking to people who know the context of what they're saying. They don't have to unpack it, explain it. But make no mistake what Peter and John are doing. Because they understand that the gospel is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth. And when you are speaking truth, you cannot compromise. Proclaiming the gospel means that we must be uncompromising with regards to salvation by Christ alone. See, that goes against a lot of what the world says today. You know, we, we, we all live among that saying that came from the Rodney King incidents, why can't we all just get along? And, and what that means is, okay, you have your position, I have my position, let's just kind of come and come to this mutual agreement. And you know what? That works in a lot of situations. That works, you know, if I'm giving somebody like, you know, marital counseling, it works. I'm talking to friends that are having a conflict, it works. But when, when, when one position is truth, eternal truth, absolute truth, any attempt to compromise no matter how small, you have made truth false. Oh, but I kept most of it. You know, I, I kept the Jesus part and the, the stories that, in, and the teachings that, you know, that don't cause problems in culture. I kept most of it. Isn't that okay? I kept 98% of it. There's increasing pressure among Christians in our culture. And by the way, if you're not part of American culture, forgive me, very ethnocentric of me. But within our culture, the culture that we're in right now, Western, modern, first, you know, here with first world culture, there's pressure always to compromise truth in the name of just getting along. Now understand, I'm not talking about that everything that, that you believe or in every single level is, is, is exactly right and it can never be compromised. I'm not talking about even within the church when we disagree about stuff. 
but I am talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the truth that he alone can save. He alone can make us righteous. See, Peter and John are talking to the Sanhedrin, and it's largely these, this group, uh, especially with the Sadducees, who are anti-supernaturalist. In other words, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in resurrection. They think this is life. This is 2,000 years ago, okay? This is not new thinking. Everybody thinks it's new thinking. It's not new thinking. There were versions of Sadducees in every culture. These are naturalists. These are people who say when you die, you die. They might not know all the science that happens to your decomposing body, but you die. There is no afterlife. And to that group, Peter and John are saying, God brought a guy back from the dead. This guy, Jesus. He's saying there to all the religious leaders, this is the guy you killed. That doesn't sound like somebody who's trying to just get along. And then he's saying, God raised the guy you killed from the dead, which tells you God is on Jesus' side, not your side. And then he continues and he says, this is, Jesus is the stone, the cornerstone, that again, you, those of you, the builders, those of you who are responsible for, for, for bringing God's truth to your people, you guys, when truth showed up, you threw it away. And then he says, there is no other way. No other way. And again, we live in this, this world that, that, that just, it's the spirit of compromise and Christians have decided it's all about getting along. I believe we should get along. I believe that the Bible tells us that, that we should be above reproach, that we're not to be vengeful. For goodness sakes, we're supposed to love our enemies. But how, how is it love for your enemies if you know the truth, the only truth that will save them, and you're going to compromise it to spare their feelings? Is that love? That's not love. I don't know what that is. That's self-love. That's not unconditional, sacrificial love. It is truth. We live in the world of, you know, the PC world. They want a PC gospel. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about judgment. They just want to talk about all the, you know, the love and the grace and the, all that God offers you, all the blessings he offers you. They only want to know the good news. They don't want to know the bad news. And as I've said before and others have said before me, you cannot understand the greatness of God. You cannot understand the depth of his love without understanding the depth of our sin. 
the God who we rebelled against, we rejected, sent his son, who we rejected and killed and resurrected him from the dead so that we might be reconciled to him forever. You, you, you didn't just make a few mistakes. We as a human race and each of us as, as human beings spent part of our lives, if not most of our lives, rebelling against God, rejecting him, trying to do everything on our own or trying to chase after some other thing that would, that would give us what we thought we, we needed. Some of us might have even continued to do this even after becoming Christians, like constantly trying to make ourselves righteous, live up to some moral code, and thinking that's what Christianity is. But it's the God who we rebelled against. As Paul will write in Romans, we were enemies, enemies of God. We were helpless. We couldn't save ourselves even if we wanted to. And he sent his son. As long as we think we were just a little bit messed up and, you know, God came along and kind of, you know, tidied up a little for us, we don't understand the depth of our sin or the depth of his grace. That's what Peter and John are preaching. I think that's what the religious leaders understand. They understand that in some ways, Peter and John are telling them exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler. Want to follow me? All right, you want to follow me? Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you can follow me. I think the religious leaders understand the radical claims. All the words that they had heard Jesus had said are echoing back to them. And here's Peter and John preaching repentance, preaching return, preaching reconciliation. But see, people are afraid. You know, I, you know we used to go to a church, a big church, mega church, and I remember being there, and it took me a while to notice, and I always wanted to ask the pastor this, but in their 7,000-seat arena, there were no crosses, not one single cross. It was this beautiful auditorium, not one cross. I didn't know if that was just an oversight or if that was intentional. But I do know that a lot of people in the name of reaching people for Christ and not offending them don't want to talk about sin and don't want to talk about judgment. How can you talk about repentance? What are you repenting from if you can't talk about sin? I'm not even saying use those words. I'm just saying talk about what it is that God came to save us from. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This is the evidence Luke brings in to say, this dude was really healed. Because all one of those anti-supernaturalists had to say is, I, I go to the temple every day. I've never seen that guy. Or yeah, I see that guy. He kind of goes up there with his crutch, but then I see him at night, you know, and he's just kind of walking normal. They could have easily debunked this story. They could have brought in witnesses that said, this guy, no way. But everybody knew this guy. He'd been there for so long. But they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They might still have thought, because they're not all of a sudden going to become supernaturalists, they might still have thought they did some kind of trick. Maybe like 40, 50 years ago, they told this guy, dude, just pretend to be lame for 40 years. And then, you know, they, they, they might have, maybe it's his twin brother. They, they might have thought of something. They're not necessarily believing in the supernatural all of a sudden. But what they can't deny is that they don't have any evidence. And everybody in Jerusalem knows this miracle happened. This means now they're afraid. They're afraid if they do something to these guys, there's going to be a riot. And what powerful people in this time, they had one job. Whether you were the, the Jewish religious leaders, whether you were the king, whether you were the governor, you all reported to the emperor, and you have one job. Keep everything peaceful. That doesn't mean keep everybody happy, just no uprisings. No truckers blocking bridges. You know, no you know, people taking over parts of cities. As long as you keep peace and there's, there's nothing that's going to cause the emperor to go, what's wrong with these guys? Because what the emperor is going to do is he's going to send down an army. Army's not going to care. And you, governor, you, king, you, high priest, you're gone. They have one job, and now they realize they can't do what they probably wanted to do. And so it tells us that it says, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they gave them a good talking to. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. They're saying, we already know. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. There in the midst of this story, Peter and John, standing before their accusers, utter these words that Christians have echoed for 2,000 years. 
we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If we were to kind of put this in our language today, we can't help it. We can't help it. We've seen Jesus. We've heard him. We've experienced the Holy Spirit. We know his power. We cannot help but proclaim the gospel. They didn't have to go to a evangelism training. They didn't have to like wait till they had proper materials and instruction. The signs were coming. They were experiencing them. They couldn't help but tell. They had walked with Jesus. They now had the Holy Spirit. They couldn't help but tell. They couldn't have stopped themselves if they tried. And that's what true witnesses do. That's what his church does. We cannot help but proclaim the gospel. We cannot stop even if we wanted to. We're not going to stop because we're threatened. We're not going to stop because it's not popular. We're not going to stop even if it means people don't want to you know, flock to our church or people in our church want to leave. We're going to proclaim the gospel because it's true, but also because we know it's true. Can it help? You see, we're... If, if you know truth and you know the truth of Jesus Christ, you're not proclaiming the gospel because we, you think you're better than someone else. If you really understand the gospel, it's not because you think you're better, but it's because of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. It's not because you want to prove you're right and everybody else is wrong. It's because you want them to know truth so they can know Jesus as you know Jesus. Doesn't matter the situation, whether we're received or rejected, praised or persecuted, we cannot help but proclaim the, the gospel. It's Christ. It's Christ so alive in us is Christ so alive in our midst that we cannot help but proclaim the gospel? You see, we've been talking about there's these two parts. There's the part, that's the sign. The sign is the evidence. The Holy Spirit at work, either in, in things that are happening in your life that some of us maybe cannot see yet, or things that, that Christ is doing in our church, in our relationships with one another. There's the sign. Are we at least participating in the sign? Because that's an important part of gospel proclamation. It's telling us what Christ has done and what Christ is doing right now. And if we're asked to give an answer, 
if we're asked to explain what's going on with you, you don't seem like the same person you were. What's going on with those weird people at Wiley Baptist Church? Why do they seem to, to treat one another differently and care about one another like they're a family? Are we telling people that it's because of what Jesus Christ has done? You know, I grew up, you know, and as a Southern Baptist, and one of the things as Baptists, you know, it's one of the reasons I remained a Baptist is because of an emphasis on evangelism and missions. There's a lot of things Southern Baptists do that drive me insane. But evangelism and mission has always been their emphasis. But I think in all my growing up years, you know, the question is why don't more Baptists, why don't more Christians evangelize? And I think it's because we've made evangelism something separate. You see, it doesn't matter if you can walk someone down the Roman road. It doesn't matter if you can give them the four spiritual laws. It doesn't matter if you can explain, explain clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not real in your life. It's not real in your life. Is Jesus Christ so real? Is the work of the Holy Spirit so real that you cannot help but share the gospel? You know, there's a, there's a famous scene from the um, end of the NCAA basketball championship, and maybe some of you might not follow basketball, but you might know this this. This guy, the coach, his name was Jimmy Valvano. And the reason you would know him is because he died rather young from cancer. And so there's all of these things that go out there. But there's a scene that when his North Carolina State team, like miraculously almost, unexpectedly, wins the national championship on the last bucket. Last second, he, you know, the guy just drops the ball in. And there's a scene where Jimmy Valvano, as the coach, does what, you know, he's excited. He's jumping around. And then you see him running around the court trying to find somebody to hug. And he can't find anybody. Like, everywhere he goes, somebody's, they're already, like, engaged. And it's kind of funny because it takes him a few seconds to finally find somebody. I sometimes think, like, that's how it should be, that that what Christ is doing in our lives, what Christ is doing in our church, is so powerful that, that sometimes we're running around trying to find somebody to tell. And, and we're frustrated because there's nobody we can tell. Because either somebody's already told them, right? Or, you know, we just haven't found them yet. That's what's the heart of the task of the church. Proclaim the gospel. The main way we love our enemies, proclaim the gospel. The main way we love strangers, those who are hurting, proclaim the gospel. Yes, we need to do everything else 
If somebody's hungry, we need to feed them. If someone's having financial issues, we need to try to help them. If someone's having relationship issues, we need to do all of those things. It's not share the gospel or do those things. It's and do those things. But what we cannot ever compromise on is proclaiming the gospel. I don't think you always have to lead with that. I don't think if someone is starving to death that you need to go over there and say, I got some food for you, but uh, give me about 10 minutes. I'm going to share with you about Jesus. No, you feed them. You take care of them. And somewhere down the way, you're going to tell them about Jesus. The gospel, his church, they're connected. They cannot be separated. And it's not because we're trying to keep it together. It's because we cannot help but proclaim the gospel.